Well, as I said before, today is Palm Sunday, so we're going to take a little break from the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to focus on, on Palm Sunday this morning. And I've titled this uh, message this morning, Multiple Entries. No, this isn't about a horse race, okay? Multiple entries, you'll see what I mean by that. Today we refer to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to be uh, looking at the first 11 verses of that. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles in your pew. And as always, I'll have all the Scripture up on the screen as we go along. So let's dig in here. And this is what it says. It says, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of, of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them here, and if anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately send them. This was done to fulfill the prophecy. Tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus said, and they brought the animals to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd, what, uh, let's see. Did I mess up here? Sorry. Oh, I switched too soon. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road ahead of Jesus, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. He was in the center of the procession, and the crowds all around were shouting, Praise God! For the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was stirred as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What an awesome day, huh? What an awesome day where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and the people are singing his or shouting his praises as he's coming in. Can, can you picture it? What an awesome moment. Jesus' triumphal entry to the city of Jerusalem. However, there's a problem with Palm Sunday, isn't there? Now, there's notes uh, in the bulletin if you want to outline, if you want to write some notes this morning. There's a problem with Palm Sunday, isn't there? That moment where this is a glorious day and imagine this, the disciples are all charged up as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The disciples are going, yeah, finally people are getting it. This is so stinking awesome. This is great. Because they had some difficulties along the way, hadn't they? They had some hard times along the way as they were challenged and those, and those sorts of things. And now it's like, wow, this is cool. Everything's awesome. But if this was such a triumphal entry, why did they crucify him five days later? That's, people have a short memory, don't they? I mean, that's shorter memory than people have with politics, right? You know what I mean. Hosanna in the highest. Shouting from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him in just five days. What goes wrong by Friday? What goes wrong? You see, by Friday, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples. He's arrested by the high priests. Uh, they send their guards to arrest him. He is accused by a coalition of religious leaders, and then he's tried 
by a Roman governor, sentenced to die the death of a common criminal, death by crucifixion. There's a problem here, isn't there? Now, let me share with you a little uh, history lesson here, and I get kind of geeked up about this. This is really cool. You ready? We're going to talk about two possessions, two processions that day, okay? And this is important to realize. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was not the only one that day. He was not the only one who made an entry into Jerusalem. In the year 30 AD, Roman historians have recorded that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. And Roman historians say that this happened on the very same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And you'll see why in a minute, how they can know that for sure. But Pilate was entering in a different part of the city than Jesus was. You had Jesus entering one place and Pilate entering another place. I wonder how different those entries were. I remember my wife and I were watching the movie uh, Gandhi not too long ago. And there was a a point in the movie where Gandhi uh, comes to India. And on the same day Gandhi is getting off the ship, there's a a British uh, higher up who's getting off the ship as well. And down where the British higher up is getting off, there's a band playing and he's coming down the gangplank and there's some people there welcoming him. And then down where the common folk get off the gangplank, uh, get off the ship, Gandhi's coming down the gangplank and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people waiting for him to arrive. Two different, two different entries as it were. But imagine the, the spectacle of that entry when Pilate came into Jerusalem. Pilate with a garrison of Roman soldiers, soldiers clad in armor, shining helmets carrying swords, spears, shields, bows and arrows, drummers beating out the cadence as they marched in perfect formation. You see, these guys came into town and they were all business. They didn't even wave. People were watching. They didn't come and go or the parade wave. No, none of that, right? They were all business. They were very serious, very serious people. You see, Pontius Pilate was the governor of the region. And it was standard practice for the governor of a region, uh, of a region or of a foreign territory, I should say, to be in its capital during religious celebrations. And Jesus was coming into Jerusalem because on the very next day, what was starting? Passover. This is a big celebration for Israel, so Pilate would be in Jerusalem for Passover. You see, the region had been under Roman occupation for about 80 years by this time, and the Romans had no tolerance for rebellion. So Pilate comes in making a strong showing with lots of troops. And he comes into the city with all these troops, but why? Why would he bring all these troops? Friends, because during religious celebrations, feelings of nationalism grow. And that usually draws attention to their oppressors, in this case, the Romans. You see, the Romans knew that there was always a greater chance of rebellion during these times. The Romans had dealt with this kind of thing before. This was not the only region that the Romans ruled over. The Roman Empire was quite big at this time. And Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant to send a message to the Jews. 
to dissuade any plots of rebellion, to intimidate the citizens from even talking about rebellion. But this was a day of two processions. Boy, I'm having a hard time with that word. Processions. So let's get back to Jesus' entry, shall we? Pilate's procession was meant as a display of military might and strength. Jesus' procession was meant to show something quite different. See, both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark say that Jesus told his disciples to go into the city and find a donkey tied up and ask the owner and, and tell the owner the Lord needs it and take the donkey. Matthew says that this is consistent with what the prophet Zechariah wrote. Look again what Matthew said. He said, this was done to fulfill the prophecy. Tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Matthew is quoting the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt. But there's more to this passage in Zechariah, which is really cool. There's more to this passage than just a description of Jesus' mode of transportation. In this chapter, Zechariah reassures the people of Judah that God has not forgotten them. Look what it says in the following verses, and this is God speaking. He says this, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem, and I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. Your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners, for there is yet hope. I promise this very day I will repay you two mercies for each of your woes. Judah is my bow and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword, and like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. The Lord will appear above his people. His arrows will fly like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will go out against his enemies like a whirlwind from the southern desert. What an awesome passage, huh? I don't know about you. I hear that, and I'm like, yeah, that's so cool. It's a message of promise, a promise of victory for God's people. God will deliver us from oppression. Yes. God was talking about oppression from sin, though, wasn't he? That's what he was talking about. You see, Jews thought that this meant oppression from the Romans because the Jews are very short-sighted, right? Oh, God's going to uh, relieve us from oppression. Well, it must be the Romans because they're the ones who are oppressing us, aren't they? But the Jews were missing that there was something much greater than this idea of being uh, relieved from oppression. More than oppression from an outside person. More oppression from a, an outside government. You see, this was Israel was waiting for for 80 years. This release of oppression. 80 years. Deliverance from the Romans. Yes! They looked at the passage and they saw the promise of victory, but they skipped over that whole part about peace. You see, when the Old Testament talks about our Savior bringing peace, peace is not an absence of war, friends. It's peace with our greatest 
greatest adversary. Who's our greatest adversary? Now, a lot of you want to say Satan, don't you? But without Jesus, our greatest adversary is God. You're like, whoa, really? That's kind of freaky when you think about it, but it's true. Our greatest adversary is God. Why? Because if you don't know Christ, your sin makes you an adversary of God because God can have nothing to do with sin. There's an awesome quote by Matthew Henry, and he said this. He said, through Christ, our greatest adversary, he uses that word, has become our strongest advocate. You see, when the prophets of the Old Testament talk about having peace, they mean having peace with God. And we have peace with God because the thing that has separated us from God, the thing that has put us in conflict with God is our sin. See, if we've got sin and God, who, who is perfect, And holy, he can't have anything to do with sin. So there's this conflict. But because of Jesus Christ, God now sees us without sin. And God, who is holy, can have a relationship with somebody who is without sin. Do you understand? And that gives us peace with God. And friends, this is the greatest peace. It's much greater than a peace with a foreign adversary, right? This is the peace that we need to have so that we can spend all eternity with the Creator. You see, the Israelites looked past that part, kind of. This happened a lot with Israel in the Old Testament. The Israelites would read the Old Testament, they'd read the words of the prophets, and the prophets would talk about the coming of the Messiah, and they would read all this triumphal, victorious warrior stuff and all this, and they they would embrace all that, but the the, the whole peace thing, the other side of it, they kind of, Set that aside. You see, Israel had a vision of a warrior Messiah. That's what their vision was. When Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, even from the very beginning, he talked a lot about anti-Semitism. He talked about the Jews and about hating the Jews. But the people of Germany kind of ignored that part with Hitler because they liked everything else he was saying. Oh, he was talking about nationalism. He was talking about bringing the country's economy back. He was talking about a chicken in every pot, so to speak. So people love that part, but eventually they could no longer ignore his anti-Semitic agenda. But just like them, Israel kind of picked and chose what they wanted in a Messiah. You see, because when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the prophecies of, of the Messiah, there are prophecies of his first coming and prophecies of his second coming. And they kind of get a little mixed together in the Old Testament. So Israel kind of took the stuff they wanted. They chose what they wanted in a Messiah. People kind of do that today with God today, don't they? Right? People kind of pick and choose what they want God to be. They don't want God to be a God who would... I've heard people say, well, I believe in a God who would never send anybody to hell. Well, you believe in a God that doesn't exist. They take that idea that God is love, but they totally dismiss what it means to love. Love doesn't mean give you everything you want. Because we don't know what we need. We know what we want, but we don't know what we need. It's just like a parent and a child. You don't give your three-year-old everything they want. Well, maybe a lot of people did. That's why we're in the state we're in as a country. 
but we don't give them everything they want. You give them what they need, right? That's love. Love teaches. It doesn't appease. You don't raise a child, you rear a child. You raise chickens, right? You rear a child. What do you do for your chickens? You give them what they need. They need food, right? Am I right, Crystal? Yep, she says, yep, give them, give them chickens. Give them food, right? We don't do that with our children. We rear our children. And God teaches us and has taught us from day one who he is and who we are and who we are in him and what we are without him. Friends, that is love. But the world doesn't want to see God that way. They kind of pick and choose what they want God to be. And in the end result, they kind of make up a God that doesn't exist. You see, the kind of king that Israel wanted was different to what Jesus is. Jesus comes humbly. Not like Pilate with his soldiers and a show of power and strength. Jesus comes on what? A donkey. Jesus comes on a donkey. That seems silly, doesn't it? But you need to know that a, a king coming on a donkey is a symbol of a king who comes in peace. Friends, these two processions could not have been more different in the messages that they conveyed. Pilate, leading Roman centurions, asserts the power and might of the Roman Empire, which crushes everybody who opposes them. Jesus, riding on a donkey, embodies the peace that God desires for his people. Those who are in Jerusalem that day, on that particular day, will have to make a choice. They will either serve a ruler of this world, a ruler of might, a ruler of power, or they will choose to serve a king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. But see, friends, there are problems with leadership. Um, and you have to really think about this and understand when it comes to being a leader. <laughs> I read this in a book once, and you're going to get a kick out of this. In their book, Leadership on the Line, by authors Marty Linsky and Ronald Heifetz, they define leadership this way. Quote right from their book. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate that they can absorb. I have to say that in any class that I've ever taken or seminar I've gone to on leadership, I've never heard anybody take that approach. Well, what's the point? You disappoint your own people at a rate that they can absorb. What is that a reflection of? A reflection of a lack of leadership, is it not? It's a reflection of a lack of leadership. Before I was in ministry, I worked for a company where I was... Uh, I was doing a lot of tech work for this company, so I would go out on calls and be a troubleshooter and, and other things. And I remember that I was told that the salesmen who worked for the company, one of their greatest goals was to lower the expectations of the customer. You see, you lower their expectations, so they're surprised if you exceed their expectations. That's not leadership. What are you doing? You're dumbing everything down so that you look better. That's not real leadership. So, 
Jesus has a problem here. And both these things I just talked about with leadership, they're about expectations. Jesus has a problem of meeting expectations, doesn't he? You see, those who get caught up in the moment when Jesus entered Jerusalem, they think that they are choosing to follow Jesus that they have created in their own minds. As they were singing Jesus' praises, were they seeing Jesus for who he really was? Many of them? No. They were seeing Jesus as something that they expected Jesus to be. But by the end of that week, Jesus is going to have disappointed the crowds incredibly. He will, not, he will have not met their expectations of what they want him to be. And the crowd will turn on him. Even his disciples will betray him outright or abandon him in confusion and fear. The crowd on that Sunday proclaimed, Hosanna to the Son of David. In other words, they were placing their faith in Jesus that he would restore the glory of the nation to its splendor when David and his son Solomon ruled the kingdom. See, that's what the Jews really wanted. They wanted to be ruled by another king like David. You see, they were raised on his legend. They had heard the stories. They had read the scriptures about King David and the glorious battles that he had won. Oh, we need another David. Yeah. Maybe Jesus. Yeah, he's going to be. He's going to be that next David. And we're going to be ruled by a man who's committed to God and a man of military might. A man who will bring back the glory of Israel. And a man who will rid our nation of its oppressors, the Romans. See, see, that's what they wanted. And that's what they wanted from Jesus. That's what they expected of Jesus. But what we see here is a contrast of kingdoms. These two processions that I've talked about this morning provide a contrast that is unmistakable. A contrast between kings and kingdoms was on display that day. And although many of the people thought they sided with Jesus, they did so for the same reasons that others sided with, with Rome. Think about this. They all wanted the same thing. Jesus thought, they thought that Jesus could make their lives better and deliver them from this oppressive system. And they could finally turn the tables on the Romans. But that's why the crowd turns on Jesus by the end of the week. After listening to him preach and watching him interact with others, how he deals with the problems in the temple, how he deals with sinners, they come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't going to do the things that we want him to do. He's not going to be the one who deliver us, delivers us from Roman oppression. He's not going to be the one who brings military might to Jerusalem and to Israel. In fact, Jesus isn't going to make things better for us, is he? He's going to make things worse. If we read on in Matthew, the leaders of the Sanhedrin all agree that Jesus is going to attract the attention of the Roman Empire to Jerusalem. They don't want that. With his rhetoric and his zealousness and with his followers, that's the kind of attention that the Sanhedrin didn't want. They wanted to keep things just the way they were. Because all, although they were under Roman occupation, even the Jewish rulers had some nice perks under the system. When Jesus is accused and brought before Pilate, the people want to be rid of him. 
He hasn't met their expectations. He's not going to be the kind of savior they want. He's not going to be the kind of king they want him to be. So let's get rid of him. They were thinking, he doesn't meet my criteria, so I don't want him around. Jesus wasn't going to do what they want him to do. It's amazing. The people even get to the point of when given the choice of releasing Jesus or releasing a criminal that the people despised, the people chose the criminal, Barabbas. Can you imagine that? They chose Barabbas. They went from praising Jesus as he came into Jerusalem singing Hosanna in the highest to considering him less valuable than a thief. What a turn of events. Now, I have to be honest with you. I read this in Scripture and I say, how can you be so stupid? Right? As I've done many times yelling at my Bible. How can you be so stupid? It it literally turns my stomach. But if you or I had been there, which would we have chosen? I really don't like to think about that question. You see, the people in Jerusalem made a choice, and by Friday, the choice was clear. You see, Jesus may have been trending on Sunday, but by Friday, a Gallup poll showed his approval rating had plummeted. We have the luxury of hindsight, and we weren't there that day, right? We could say, oh, I know what I would have done. Well, we don't. But the truth is, is that we weren't there, so we don't have the burden with that choice to choose between Jesus or the Romans. I don't know about you, but I'm glad. But friends, hate to break it to you, we make that choice every day, don't we? We make that choice every day. Between the world and between Christ. Are we going to choose choose this temporary world over an eternal kingdom? The knowledge of man over the wisdom of God? Earthly treasures, which are temporary, or heavenly treasures, which are eternal? Are we going to choose man's logic over faith in God? You see, every day the world tries to tell us what our priorities should be. Pay attention to the commercials. They will tell you where our priorities should be. It's all about how you look. It's all about this. It's all about that. But none of it falls in line with Jesus. They're a clear reflection of what the world is trying to sell us. You need the newest phone. You need the latest shoes. You need the newest car. Sometimes I watch car commercials and I think, it's a car. It takes you from one place to another. It's just a car. You get in it, you start it, you drive it, you park it, and you get out. It's just a car, right? But we can get caught up in this whole idea of, well, look at my car. Did you see my new car? You know? And new cars are nice, and it's fun to get a new car, but that's not our priority in life, right? The priorities and the values that this world promotes are almost always contrary to God's. Nike has a new shoe out. Many of you may have heard of it. It says 666 on the side. What are they called? The Satan shoe. 
They're painted with red blood, which is guaranteed to have at least one drop of human blood in it. They're released tomorrow, but they're only making 666 pairs, so get in line quick. A few weeks ago, we talked about heavy-handed sinning in Sunday school. And Scripture uses that word heavy-handed, which means literally shaking your fist at God. This is what they are doing. They're literally shaking their fist at God. It's a priority system that is inconsistent with God's. You see, friends, each and every day we have a choice. A choice between two worlds. A choice between two kingdoms. A choice between two processions. Between two theologies or two ideologies. Which will we choose? The choice for God, which the world sees as foolishness. But we don't, because when we know the truth of who God is, we realize who the fools really are. People waved palm branches when Jesus entered Jerusalem because palms were a symbol of victory. Did you know that? And I can't tell you the whole story because I don't remember it, but there was a country that conquered another country, and the country they conquered had palm trees, and their country did not. So as part of their spoils of victory, they brought palm trees back to their home country. It was probably Alexander the Great or something. I don't remember. But no, it couldn't have been. Yeah, it could have been because that was before that. And ever since then, the waving of palm branches was a sign of victory for your country. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. People are waving palm branches as a sign of victory, which they may think is a sign of victory because they're going to defeat the Romans. But really, it's victory that we have that we will know and that will be realized one week from that day when Jesus rises from the grave and gives us victory over sin and death. Amen? That is the victory that is really celebrated. Friends, as Easter approaches this year, Let's always be sure to choose the right king and the right kingdom. The kingdom of God. Unlike the people of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, let's not let our praises of our Savior, of, of our Savior Jesus Christ ever diminish. Let's choose Jesus each and every day in all that we do and all that we say. And may our choice be driven by a passion for Him. May our choices be driven by a passion for for Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to sing one more song this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as we sing together this morning. And we will sing about that passion that we need to have for God. And that passion that we need to have which will govern us and lead us to make those right choices. Those choices for His kingdom above all other things.
one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. sin 
and all God's people said, amen, amen. Have a blessed day.